and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. As we often talk about on the podcast, there have been a good number of new basic income pilot programs that have launched over the last few years. People exploring unconditional cash being applied in a variety of different ways and hoping to be able to acquire new data and, and potentially new stories about what that's actually doing. But along with those specific pilots, there's actually been some new development on providing some real structural underlying support for pilots happening in general. And one example of that is the Jane Family Institute. So I got to speak about this work with Michael Steins, the CEO of the Jane Family Institute, and Steve Nunez, who is their project lead for their Guaranteed Income Initiative. So here's Owen speaking with the Jane Family Institute on the Basic Income Podcast. All right, Michael and Steve, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Same, likewise. So, Michael, I'll start with you. The Jane Family Institute has three major areas that it works on, higher education finance, digital ethics and governance, and guaranteed income. So to start, could you just tell us why you study guaranteed income and and what sort of work you do on the topic? Sure. Guaranteed income is a policy with a lot of potential. Uh, And it's been the idea has been bounced around for a long time, uh, but there's been a renewed surge of interest. Uh, and you know, one of the things we'll talk about today is what it can plausibly address and what it plausibly can't. But it seems like a very powerful policy tool in the 21st century, potentially. And, and Steve, I'll let you jump in here. What sort of work does does JFI do on the on the subject? Some of our oldest work is advising on um, pilots of uh, basic income and guaranteed income projects. For example, uh, we are um, advisors on the Stockton Seed. Uh, demonstration. Um, We've also done a lot of work uh, with uh, task forces that are set up by uh, scholars, uh, folks from nonprofit and from government who are interested in uh, exploring basic income pilots and and, uh, the feasibility of of basic income policy. For example, uh, uh, we worked as part of the Chicago Resilient Families Task Force, um, and we are currently um, participating in the Newark um, Guaranteed Income Task Force. Um, but in addition uh, to that, we are developing our own pilots, uh, which we can get into a little bit more later. Um, and we are also uh, supporting research um, that's not pilot research, but that is um, on modeling and simulation uh, of uh, the effects of a guaranteed income program operating at scale to try to understand um, some of the larger macroeconomic effects and the implications for things like um, how you finance it and uh, what uh, what the benefit level that you set is. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of stuff I want to jump into there. Let's stay theoretical just for a moment longer. So when we're thinking about pilots, we, we always get super excited about pilots on this podcast because it's a lot of the the major movement around basic income is is through these pilots. Um, But at the same time, there's this fairly obvious criticism of them, which is that you're not actually simulating a universal basic income with a pilot. You're you're giving, you know, maybe a few hundred to a few thousand people, um, you know, maybe a thousand dollars a month for a couple years. And so, but you're not really seeing what happens if you have a UBI. So why are we doing these pilots? So that's a it's an it's a question with many answers. Yes. Um, I think uh, the first thing to say is that sort of, you know we're researchers, so I'm not giving this answer, but I think it is a good answer. 
uh, they generally uh, generate a lot of momentum for the idea. I mean, I, I think the, the, the more research specific answer, or at least tending there is to say that policymakers are gonna credit live evidence much more than they do say evidence derived from elsewhere in the literature. So whether or not um, we already have a good handle on what certain kinds of cash transfers are going to do, um, live evidence from live demonstrations and pilots, uh, I think speaks much more strongly to policymakers. Um, in terms of uh, what we can learn, it's certainly true, I mean, just to list a few things, none of the pilots that exist in the US are looking at saturation effects. They're not looking at what happens if you give an entire city or an entire state or an entire country uh, a basic income. So the U of the UBI is out. Um, they also tend not to really be basic. You know, the individual poverty level in the US is 12,000. Uh, Stockton is, um, uh, is 500 a year, right? So 6,000. Um, 500 a month, sorry. Um, so even the B is somewhat out as well. Um, that said, you know, there are questions, when you give someone cash, they can do I mean, virtually anything with it. That is the point of the giving them cash. And studying what they, studying what they end up doing with their time um, ends up being, you can study what the immediate effects are of the transfer today. I mean, you, you can't study, for instance, and this is, you know, what advocates, one of the things many advocates like about UBI, you can't say, what is the effect of future transfers now? Like, if you know you're getting income for the net for the rest of your life you could very well act very very differently especially in how you educate yourself maybe how you raise your kids um if you're only getting it for the duration of a pilot that's not necessarily the case uh so that can't be studied but what people do with cash when they get it uh that can be um and that's and that's a lot of what's being studied or intends to be studied in the pilots now so i think yeah um so you guys are probably also familiar with the Hoynes and Rothstein piece, um, and we're, you know, we, we're in contact with Hillary Hoynes and Jesse Rothstein uh, fairly regularly. They participate in, in, in things that we, um, convenings that we have, and so forth. So we're, uh, you know, we're definitely aware of the arguments about the limitations of, you know, what a pilot can provide. Um, I think a lot of their points are very well taken. Um, we don't need pilots at this stage to tell us, for example, that um, guaranteed income is not going to make folks quit their jobs and, you know, go on, you know, a, a bender. Uh, we, we know fairly, fairly well um, what the, the likely effects are going to be, at least in the short run, in terms of labor supply. We also know um, from studies here and abroad that, you know, the money doesn't go to, to alcohol, tobacco, drugs. Um, so if the point is just to show that again, then there's not really all that much value added. I, I would say, though, that when you move outside of those outcomes and you look at the sorts of things that, that people, you know, wonder about, um, what would be the effect on the criminal justice system in terms of recidivism? Um, what's the effects of people, uh, on, on people in terms of their health, what's the effects of people in terms of their time use and, and their civic engagement and so forth. There, I think we have, we have some evidence. We have an idea that, you know, we have a, an idea of what the valence of the impact is going to be, but we don't really have precise estimates in terms of, of, you know, what exactly is the response to this much cash. And I, 
And I think that if you want to take a guaranteed income program seriously um, and subject it to the sorts of cost-benefit analysis discussion that, that serious policy is, is subject to, you're going to need those sorts of more precise point estimates. And I feel like that's, that's one of the things that, that a pilot can contribute, uh, assuming that it's structured the right way. I think in general, um, there's other things like um, the mechanisms behind the impact. Um, obviously, you do an RCT. A lot of people do an RCT as if it were a black box. You get an outcome, you get an impact on an outcome at the end of the day. You don't really know what. Yeah, randomized control trial, I'm sorry. Um, you don't necessarily know what, what has happened. Um, but there, there are a variety of different sort of pathways that could lead to, to, um, to those impacts. And those can be explored as part of the pilot um, through additional analyses, including um, you know, qualitative work, ethnography. Um, I think uh, I think Greg Duncan was on your um, podcast a few months ago, maybe even a year ago, um, talking about the uh, the uh, the baby's first years or um, some child allowance pilot um, that they're running, and that's again we know from a lot of work going back to, to Heckman's experiments and so forth that getting cash to young young people early on in their lives leads to, to, you know, important effects in their adult lives, but understanding exactly why that is the case, whether it's because of what parents are spending the money on or whether their, their, um, you know, their relationships are strengthened and, and the, the tension is taken out of them because of the, the stress of poverty is removed, like we don't necessarily know. So I, I feel like those are the sorts of things that a well-developed, a well-structured pilot can, can help us investigate. Yeah, and I want to get into some specifics because you've you've got plenty of specifics to work with here. Um, I'm actually very curious about the the newer study or potential study, uh, just because we haven't heard a ton about it. Can you take us inside those those conversations about what they're looking to study and how you're you're shaping that potential pilot? Yeah, um, we're we're fairly early on in the process. Actually, the task force just started meeting. Um, in uh, August, and we had our, our second meeting uh, very recently. Um, and, you know, Mayor Baraka of, of Newark um, is very committed to, to exploring how a guaranteed income program could benefit Newark um, and also how a pilot um, that's done in Newark might uh, have implications for the policy debate uh, at the state and, and national level. And we've talked, again, this is this is fairly early on, but but there's this convening has a lot of the people who are doing community development work in, in the city. We have a, um, we have uh, academics from Princeton and Rutgers working with us on this, and, and we're exploring things like, you know, what's the service and program space in Newark right now? Um, where where is it failing and where could um, a guaranteed income program bolster those efforts? Which particular populations um, that have fallen through the cracks of the existing social safety net um, might, uh, might benefit from this? And I think this actually gets to, to one or two of the other points as to why pilots are valuable now uh, still. Um, you know, the first is that 
building a live pilot, you have to build the administration of the policy already. Uh, so seeing, meaning how you give the money, how you pick who gets the money, I mean, if it's anything but universal, how you pick who gets the money. Um, but also, you know, there are important questions about what size the transfer should be, uh, how frequently uh, uh, it ought to be dispersed. Uh, no one has, I mean, that was actually, when, when we first started getting into this work, it's one of the things that I found most surprising, which is things like the EITC, the level of the EITC, for instance, so the earned income tax credit is sort of the, the major benefit in the U.S. that UBI is most often compared to. Um, and the levels that it's set at are, are largely made up. It's not as if there's tons of research that supports that at $4,500 a year, you got, start to see incredible outcomes. Uh, it's just a number that was picked in a messy policy process in the 70s. And you know, we don't know really if the difference between $500 a month and $1,000 a month is twice the benefit or six times the benefit. Uh, there isn't any research on that. And so uh, understanding both how this can be administered and how this can be structured as advantage of pilots and also um, to bring it back to Newark, I, I think a major consideration there as well. So you also mentioned that you're working on your own pilots. And I had a question in here about, you know, let's say a, a reclusive billionaire just shows up with a giant stack of cash for you to run your own pilot. But I feel like I don't need to ask that one because you are actually doing your own. So um, could you tell us about, um, you know, who is this reclusive billionaire? And um, uh, just what sort of pilots are you designing? And, and are they the ones that you would create if you just had, you know, full reign to kind of do whatever you wanted? Sure. Yeah. So I'll answer the question broadly and Steve can go into it a bit. Um, uh, so we are working currently with two large East Coast cities um, to develop uh, basic income pilots uh, at the city level. Um, they would each, they're in different stages, but they would be each roughly a thousand people. Um, I should say, if there are any reclusive billionaires out there who'd like to speak to us, uh, we'd love to hear you. Yes. Um, we, um, uh, uh, our own reclusive billionaire uh, is um, Bob Jane, who uh, runs a hedge fund here in New York. Um, but we are not funding the pilots. We only fund our research on them. Um, so the at least one of them, if not two, uh, will involve sort of money from the government. From the city government, state government? From the city government. Yes, and we are um, we're trying to design pilots that that again are are addressing questions that haven't been addressed before. Like, um, you know, so people tend to think of a guaranteed income as something that's dispersed monthly, um, but obviously the architecture that exists in the United States is, is set up for lump lump sum disbursement um, uh, at tax time. Um, that can change, obviously, but some discussion has been, well, what if we do just give people a lump sum um, disbursement once a year? What would that do and, and how would it, um, you know, what sorts of implications would that have for people's financial health and for uh, their consumption, savings, spending choices uh, versus receiving it monthly? We have some idea um, because we can look at things like the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend. Um, but we don't have a great sense. So in our studies, uh, at least one of the studies that we're, we're working on, we actually do have um, arms of the study that vary the frequency of disbursement. Um, we're also looking to interact that with 
um, different sizes of disbursement. Um, you know, a thousand people is not enough to get into very deep subgroup analysis. Um, yeah. But for at least some of the, the sort of, I would say, more inchoate studies that we're thinking about, uh, we're thinking about targeting very specific groups of people, like, for example, ex-offenders slash uh, returning citizens. People who are coming out of, out of prison, trying to re reintegrate into society. That, that's a group that we would like to, to investigate uh, very specifically. Not because in the long run we view this as um, the precursor to a targeted program that would only go to those people, but because when you're trying to find the impact on a, on a particular group of people and a particular um, outcome of interest to that group of people, you want to focus on them like for statistical precision purposes. So, so part of our discussion is, is, um, is that I think we also are having discussions about um, what sorts of benefits should be um, held constant um, and which sorts of benefits should be uh, presumed to essentially disappear in the face of, of guaranteed income. What I mean by that is um, there are right now individuals who are receiving, for example, Section 8 housing vouchers, TANF, SNAP, and so forth. And, um, you know, for very good reason, the, the, the pilots so far have been, um, you know, prior to them starting, there's been a mad dash to, to get in touch with pretty much all of the administrators of those, those benefits at the state, local, and federal level to try to get waivers and to say, we're going to hold people harmless, this won't count as income. Um, and that's great. Um, if you want to see what this program would look like as an overlay on those programs. Um, some other people have asked us, you know, what, what if we thought of this as essentially a one-to-one -one replacement for something like, like yeah. SNAP or, uh, or another such program? And in order to do that, you have to essentially allow it to be treated as cash. Um, that, that is then calculated as part of the, the, um, the uh, the benefits calculation for these these benefits so so you know that's those are painful discussions um, but they're probably also necessary discussions in terms of, of what you per, you foresee this being in the long run yeah. um, and certainly there are advocates for for basic income you know largely on the right who see it as a as a replacement for a, a huge swath of programs and then on the left uh, not so much um, but again. Um, we want to take this out of out of a, a place of abstraction and start putting some meat on it as a as a real policy proposal. That those are the sorts of conversations we're going to have to have. It's probably the most persistent conversation we have on this podcast. Is you know what do you do about all, all the other benefits? Because there's there's a lot to complain about, but they keep millions of people out of poverty, and you can't just throw that out the window. And you have these benefit cliffs that um, if it was just a smooth drawdown, I think it would be easy enough to treat the basic income as regular income um, if, you know, with some adjustments to those programs, but it's often not a smooth drawdown and there's, it's not one of them, you know, some people are on, you know, four or five different programs and to have all of those drawdown is, um, I mean, you run into a lot of thorny issues and you start worrying that th this cash you're giving people is actually leaving them with less cash. Um, so yeah, it's super important question. We've seen simulations, um, by 
you know, not public yet, but from, from scholars that we're in, in contact with um, that show that, that the net effects on, on poverty and on income distribution can be radically, radically different yes. um, depending on, you know, which, which programs you're, um, you're replacing. And, and I think importantly also is how you choose to finance it, uh, which has been another thing that uh, we think needs a lot more attention and I think is, is the subject of, of a lot of our non-pilot work at the moment. Yeah, and actually, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Like, what's I don't know if you have any broad swaths about different ways you might how you would advocate funding it, or just what you're looking at there. Sure. Yeah. So, um, one of the one aspect of our work that we didn't mention is that um, we're starting to work with um, an entire city in South America that has a basic income for uh, its entire population. It's a policy. It's not a pilot. Um, it launched, I think nine months ago now. Um, uh, I don't think I can say yet, but I mentioned that because, you know, when we're thinking about the kinds of effects that we're interested in here, there are really three tiers. So there are the micro effects. Um, and that's really mainly what we've been talking about. So that's effects on the individual level, like consumption, labor market effects, uh, health, childcare, you know, you name it, um, all, all, all the things that affect the individual. But then there are sort of there are meso level effects, you might call them. So how does a city respond or a neighborhood or a community? Um, is there more, you know, do they pool resources? Maybe, um, you know, this if you're familiar with any of the give directly work in Kenya, they start to look at some of these questions. Uh, and then there are the macro effects or what you could also call the general equilibrium effects. Um, and these have to do with questions like, what happens to inflation? What happens to aggregate demand? What happens to interest rates? What happens to the overall job market? What happens to unemployment? Uh, and those questions are really, really, I mean, you just can't answer them with a pilot, um, but you can start to answer them if you have a saturation site, if you have an entire city or an entire state. Um, so, uh, so right, we, we are starting to look at those questions, both through this sort of policy analysis and evaluation that we're doing, um, but also through uh, modeling and simulations, both at the city level uh, and uh, nationally. I'll let you talk. Yeah, to, I mean, to give you a just when I when I arrived at JFI, one of the first things that I was sort of interested in was um, you know we we live in New York, um, which which has major issues with with affordable housing, and and you know it led me to think, what would happen if you just threw a bunch of money at people? Uh, who are doubling up and tripling up um, just to live in terms of housing, would, would they then go out on, onto the market and try to get their own housing? And would that lead to just, you know, a horrible spike in, in housing prices? Now, that, that's a, you know, what economists would call a partial equilibrium sort of analysis, um, holding everything else constant. But there, there's a lot of other sort of feedback loops that occur in, in the economy that could mean that the, the the overall effect on on housing prices or wages, prices in general, might be very different than what you would expect from just making that sort of, of you know partial equilibrium analysis. So um, so we've been in touch with um, with macroeconomists um, who are doing this kind of work. Um, we talk about? So for example. Um, there's a professor of finance uh, at the University of British Columbia named Jack Pavalukas, who um, has a, a very interesting model that 
which is a, a dynamic stochastic spatial equilibrium model, uh, which he initially developed with his co-authors uh, to look at um, the effects of affordable housing policies on a metropolitan area. Um, uh, we are supporting him and, and one of his graduate students to uh, extend that model to look at uh, the effects of, of an unconditional cash transfer in the form of um, a, a regular guaranteed income on, on exactly those sorts of things, on, on prices and wages and, and well-being. Uh, we're also working with um, uh, a Harvard PhD student uh, at, in the economics department there, uh, Catherine Holston, who is developing uh, a true macroeconomic model, uh, a dynamic stochastic uh, general equilibrium model uh, to look at, at, um, at something very similar. And I think um, one of the interesting things about that is, is that, that these sorts of models can incorporate uh, differences in, in financing structures um, and really investigate you know, what that means in terms of, of the, the overall impact. So um, something like a, an income tax, a progressive income tax, basically turning a, the basic income or the guaranteed income into something like a negative income tax uh, or a sales tax or, or VAT or a wealth tax. Um, and you can actually start to kind of tease out some, some, uh, some differences. So yeah, that, that's something that we're really excited about, I think, and that, that over the next few months, we're hoping to have to be able to say more about publicly in terms of, of their findings. Yeah, and th there's so much to, to dive into there that we don't have time for here, but I'm just wondering if there's anywhere our listeners, if they are, if they do want to go down that rabbit hole, if there's, should they just go to your website? Uh, yes, uh, you can. Um, our, our emails are there. Uh, you can always email the JFI inbox. And um, uh, editorials asked me also to plug our newsletter. Uh, so you can sign up for a newsletter there too. That was Owen speaking with Michael Steins and Steve Nunez on the Basic Income Podcast. So I thought that both Michael and Steve made some, some very strong points as to the value of pilots. And this is something we've talked about in the past, that it's not just about getting high-level data about unconditional cash being good for people, but it's about what actually brings us closer to being able to actually enact policy. And the fact that more recent pilot data is particularly convincing to policymakers as far as getting them to get on board with whatever sort of basic income policy proposal. 
is good reason unto itself as to why more of these does make a big difference for for the space. Yeah, and different policymakers and people in general are going to be convinced by different elements of the policy. So the ability of pilots to target, say, they brought up incarcerated people, which or you know formerly incarcerated people, which I think would be a, a great subject for a pilot. It's one of those things where I'll often say, hey, and it would probably reduce recidivism, and there's some actual evidence for that. But to do an actual pilot, I think, would be an excellent idea. Uh, and there's there's all these little populations like students, gig workers, you know, a child allowance where you, you can start to pile up different pieces of evidence, even if you're not doing a full UBI, that you make you can start to build the case with solid evidence for each population. Right. Because as we said in the past, we can't actually know exactly what will happen with a full UBI until we do a full UBI because of the social dynamics, because of what happens when this does happen to everyone at once. But the more pieces of the puzzle we can start to assemble, the more accurate our our model of that can, can start to become. And so we, we hopefully can then get to a point where we can be confident enough as to what that looks like that we're, we can actually push something through. Yeah, and I was struck by, uh, they, they mentioned both of the EITC and Social Security that these are just things that people came up with at some point. They didn't, you know, I think it's good that we're piloting UBI and really studying it and trying to figure out how to do it right. Um, but yeah, it it was one of those things where I've kind of thought about it before, but it just struck me anew when he, I think it was Michael said that e, the ETIC you know, benefit amount, is just, it's super arbitrary. We came up with it in the 70s and we've just been running with that and now it just feels normal. And we, we don't really know, like, what if we tripled it? You know, what what would happen? <laughs> like, um, but I, there's probably a good case for tripling it. But it, it just, I, I think, is worth remembering that there is nothing particularly sacrosanct about the benefit programs we do have. We do know that they keep millions of people out of poverty, so perhaps that's sacrosanct. But these specific details, the amounts, these can be adjusted and probably should be. Yeah, I think there's so much to explore. And I, I mean, yeah, it's not... As I think you brought up, it's not just about does UBI work or not. It's how does it compare to what we're doing and what are the variations and how does that affect people. All of that gives us a more a broader and more accurate understanding of, of, of what, what the system looks like that helps inform everything coming out of that. The other thing that I thought was really important that they brought up is that it's important for UBI advocates to really pay a lot of attention to how it's funded and that being a UBI advocate should maybe really mean you're also a tax advocate because this, I mean, it really completely changes what you're talking about as a program depending on where that money's coming from because there's some models that are extremely progressive and some that are not at all and some that are extremely inclusive and some that leave out a lot of people too. And so how you actually apply the tax makes, or whatever source of funding, makes a really, really big difference on that front. Yeah, this is the sort of thing where we are now far enough along in the basic income conversation that I think you can't really get away with just saying basic income is a good idea. Uh, you, because, yeah, is it like the freedom dividend, which is mostly a value-added tax? Is it, are you just printing money? Is it a carbon tax? You know, it obviously, yeah, as you said, makes a very big difference where that's coming from. And it's nice that we're we're getting to this point where 
it's not just basic income. There are, you know, 10 different basic incomes you can choose from and it makes a huge difference, but that does mean there's more work for the movement to do to figure out what exactly we're talking about. All right, that'll do it for this episode. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear on the podcast, we always appreciate people contributing to support our work. You can do that by going to glow.fm slash basic income. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And please tell your friends to bring more folks into this conversation. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.